Hello. Hey, how's it going, man? It's going good. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. All right, hang on just a second. I'm going to add in Bill. Here I am from <laughs> On the Road. All right. Yes, yes. I'm in a nice hotel room in Tallahassee. Tallahassee. All right. Mike, are you Mike? there? I am here. Can you hear me? Yeah, there he is. How do you pronounce your last name? It's Voiles. Voiles? Yes, that's correct. Excellent. Excellent. How's it going, man? Going okay. Say hello to my buddies uh, Paul Spataro and Bill Robinson. Hi, guys. Hey, Mike. How are you? Good. How are hello, you? sir. Doing good. Thank you. Now, I don't know if either of you guys ever go to uh, Mike's Amazing World, but uh, it's an awesome, awesome site that uh, we've been using for a long, long time. And, uh, and Mike and I were chatting on, what was that, Facebook earlier today? I forget. Was that Facebook or email? One of the two. Yeah, I think you just sent me an email. I, I don't know if I've talked to you on Facebook before. I know I've talked to Bailey before. but That's right, because I, I emailed into the site. That's right. Yeah. So cool. All right. Well, I know that uh, that Paul and Bill have uh, have brought comics to the table. I, I don't know if you had brought any comic or if you just want to to add uh, commentary. But however you guys want to work this, we can go that way. Yeah, I don't really have anything. Uh, I didn't. I didn't really know I was going to be doing this. So, um. <laughs> <laughs> boy, that that sounds familiar. I was just going to say, ask Bill. <laughs> I have a habit of Shanghaiing people. Yeah, I don't really have anything prepared. Um, the only thing I got recently was I picked up uh, a cool book today, House of Secrets Number One. Um, so that completes my run on that title. So that was pretty cool. The what old House that? of Secrets Number One. Yeah. Oh wow. Wow. Yeah. What year was Number One? Uh, Nineteen fifty-six. Wow. That must be tough to track down. So yeah, it was the last one I needed to complete that run. It's like the third big run I've completed in the last few weeks. So. What else, Willis? Awesome. What else have you finished? Um, just before the Christmas, I finished my Lois Lane run. Nice. And a couple weeks ago, I finished Challengers of the Unknown. Wow, oh, that's wow. pretty impressive. Yeah. I mean, and, and we're talking 1950s here. That, that's that's really, oh, yeah. uh, like I said, yeah. that's tough stuff to track down. Definitely. Um, but pretty much all the good Silver Age stuff I've already done, so now I'm just working my way back, so... Yeah, that's. I think that's the mistake we all make uh, when we first start this is going backwards from current day instead of trying to go for the oldest stuff you possibly can get right from the beginning. Because yeah. you don't realize the time you get older how hard it's going to be to get some of that really right. old stuff. Oh, I'm sure I'll never have like an action number one or anything like that, but it's on my list. <laughs> when when I first started, if it, you know, I was going for Spider Man, and when I first started, the first issue I got was 131. And I was trying to work my way back. Had I like really made a concerted effort to start at number one, I might have been able to complete that run. But there's a lot of stuff that I I remember seeing at conventions for so cheap back in the day. But mm -hmm. to me at the time, it was really expensive. You know, it was like mm -hmm. five five dollars a book seemed like oh so much so much money. Yeah, exactly. Now. You, you weren't willing to sacrifice quantity for quality back then because you don't know better when you're young. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I've got plenty of quantity now, so I'm not going to work on the quality. Yeah, exactly. How many books do you have? 51,000, something like that. Holy <laughs> shit, dude. 
That's three times as many as I have, and mine take up an entire room. That's nuts, He's got a full dude. run of House of Secrets, Lois Lane, and uh, what was the third one? <laughs> Challenges uh, of the Unknown. Challenges yeah. of the Unknown. Of course he's got 51,000 books. Oh, well, I have, I have wow. every single DC comic published between 1961 and 2010. My God, wow. Including all the trades, all the imprints, all the variants, all that kind of garbage, too. All genres, everything. I bow oh before God. you. You are my hero. <laughs> yes, absolutely. We're not worthy. We're not worthy. <laughs> so, I wonder where I get all that information on the website. It comes a lot from actually having the books in front of me. So, where do you wow. get all that money? Yeah, no kidding. Honestly, like I don't make all that much money. It just all, all my freaking spare income goes to goes to comics. You know. Wow. Mine go to my kids. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> See, I don't have any of those. <laughs> okay, you, you better keep it that way or uh, the uh, 51,000 comics. You'll never become 52,000 comics, dude. Uh, I'll tell you right now. That's what happened to me. <laughs> are are you married? No, no. So that, oh, that well, of course. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's probably... Yes, we 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 three know that uh, that heartache well. Yes. <laughs> what are you going to do with these books? Why are we? All, I'm tired of moving all these boxes. Yeah, exactly. Why don't you sell all that shit? Um, no. I, I'll sell you every first. Time I, <laughs> every, 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 every time I, I would move, I would lose friends. They'd be like, you know, why don't you collect something lighter, like lead figurines? <laughs> <laughs> so I, no, I actually. No one did. ever wants to help you move twice. You know, they'll volunteer once, and then that's it. <laughs> well, I got smarter because then I went to the short boxes. I'm like, see, look, they're half the weight. Come on. <laughs> they're just twice as many. The heaviest boxes where I used to keep my DC archives in long boxes. And those things, like the archives themselves, were much heavier than the regular books. So putting them in a long box was like 150 pounds of pure heaviness. They must be all over the house then. No, I have, actually have, I have a room that's dedicated to just the comic. Um, it's called the house. It is the house. So you got like like these uh, the white long boxes all stacked up and around, so it actually looks kind of like an igloo. Then I'm thinking. Um, not really. I have custom made tables that I use, so it actually looks more like a comic store in that room. That's cool. Um, but I'm, I'm out of room, so there's just enough space to, like, walk on a little aisle. Like, if I stand with my feet, like, one in front of the other, <laughs> there's just enough space to walk between them. So. Now, do you have drawer boxes, or do you have to lug them around like we do when we have to dig for things? Oh, no, I have. I, I don't have drawer boxes. But, honestly, I can, find, I can get to any book in my collection in three minutes or less. Wow. I can get to any book in my collection within a week. <laughs> <laughs> I've been uh, I've been building shelves in my garage, so I'm I could get things a little bit quicker now. I, yeah, I don't actually, have to move five boxes to get to one. I'm not so bad now. I, I put up metal metal shelving, and you know each box mm -hmm. is on a separate shelf, so I don't have them stacked anymore. So it, it it does make them more accessible, and I've started indexing them so. I, I can get at my stuff much easier. Plus, I have like one fifth of what Mike has, <laughs> or or less than that even. I would say one one eighth 
Wow. 51,000. Holy crap. I definitely have some boxes that, you know, if I dropped them in the ocean, I wouldn't care about, but... <laughs> Watch out, you might kill a dolphin or something. <laughs> uh, I'm sure I can, I can use them to, like, you know, insulate the house or something. You have Aquaman going, another box of Valiant? Jesus Christ. <laughs> See, but you're totally uh, DC-focused, huh? These days, yeah. The, back in the day, like, my prime buying days were probably 1989 to about 1994. And at that time, I was buying every DC, every Marvel, every Dark Horse, every Image, every Valiant, a couple other companies, Malibu, I think I was buying at the time. Um, so I was buying pretty much everything that everybody was putting out at that time. And then in 94, I went to work for a comic store, and even getting a bigger discount caused me to have to drop a bunch of stuff because the pay was so low. <laughs> so, mm. Yeah, well, within the 90s with the explosion of uh, titles, I can imagine it would be different. It's even worse these days. It's even worse these days. The number of titles they published in the 90s compared to now is about half. Hmm. Yeah, I, I wonder if they would be more successful if they would decrease the number of titles and, you know, have, you know, just to go with Marvel, have, you know, one or two X-Men books, one or two Avengers books, you know, one Spider-Man book, you know, and, and see if that focus would, would increase their sales and their profit margins. But I don't think any company is brave enough, brave enough to do it. They want to uh, flood the market and, you know, own everybody. Right. Well, DC wants Mike to get to 52,000 so they can go 52. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I... I quit buying their new stuff a couple of years ago, so I'm not really interested in uh, their new 52 or 50 PU, as I call it. Yeah. Reach Which makes you the perfect person for this show. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. That's the whole mission statement of this show. Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry. Never Absolutely. Quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book Back Issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back to the bins. Tough time with the indie one this time. I just everything I, uh, that the random number generator kept picking, I kept going, "Oh, really?" <laughs> so, well, did, did you end up doing the one we talked about doing previously? Which one was that? So, I, I, I had uh, you as doing Captain Canuck number one. We did that, didn't we? No, we did. Uh, we actually. No, did, I think uh, you talked about. Yeah, we did Alpha Flight, and then we went on a talk of Captain uh, Canuck, and then you were going to do it, and we were going to do, remember, we were going to do two episodes in one night, and you were going to do Captain Canuck for the second episode. Uh, Did we not do that? No. What the hell did I do with Captain Canuck number one? All right. God, I thought for sure, I thought we recorded that episode. Oh, my God. My memory is even worse than I thought. I'm, I'm like, seriously, like, got the Alzheimer's here. I'm telling you, that's scary. 
That's bad. No, I, I mean I read the thing and everything, but I thought that we had done it. So I, I bet you I just threw it on the on the finish pile somewhere. I'm gonna have to dig it back out now. Oh, that's horrible. Oh well, I'll fish it back out and uh, and God, that means I have to reread that piece of crap though. It was bad. It was really bad. Did you read it? I tried. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let me uh, take a quick break. I'll be right back. All right. <laughs> you know, this is the way you play the please stand by music. <laughs> I was just going to bring us in, too. I wonder what bag of goodies Bill has in his hotel room. I heard that, Paul. Heard that, Paul. <laughs> what, what'd you hear? What'd you hear? This is where we play the police vampires. <laughs> I was just about to bring us in, and you're like, "Wait, I gotta, I gotta go do something. I gotta go to the bathroom. I gotta go put literally the backlog jar of Vaseline <laughs> away before the maid comes in." <laughs> I'm, I'm picturing Bill hanging out with like a smoking jacket on. <laughs> Various assortment of oils on the uh, counter. <laughs> Get that please stand by music going again. <laughs> oh, the funny thing is, I probably have that too. The girl from Ipanema? Exactly. <laughs> I do have that. I do have the girl from Ipanema as elevator music somewhere. Of course, yes, of, of course you wouldn't know that, Paul, since you were my nemesis in song pop. You kicked my ass this week. Did I? Oh, I haven't been on. What are you talking about? <laughs> Song pop. It's uh, you play it on, you know, like an iTouch, and uh, basically it's you pick a category, and it's five songs. Name that tune as fast as you can. Then you send the challenge to somebody, and they name them, and whoever did it fa- did it faster and more accurately gets the win on that. And you guys so, like, doing when this shit behind my back, don't even invite me or nothing. All right, I see how. I'll be happy to invite you. I see how. Sure. Except- just Except that guy you, the, you there, there are categories that would make your head spin. I see. We're work friends. I get it. I understand the <laughs> relationship now. Yeah, this I'm good. is work friends. <laughs> but just, just to, you know, to make you happy, my book is Dick Dillon also. Say that again? My book is Dick Dillon also. Are you serious? Yes. Why would you do that to me? Because that's why we're friends. <laughs> It's a, it's a friendship pain. <laughs> if you, right. just, you know what? Anybody who made me try and read that Captain Canuck book shouldn't be hey, complaining I, about anything I put dude, in front of Dude, you know that these are coming from my vast unread collection, so it was just as painful for me as it was for you. I had never read it before either, so I thought the art was nice, but the story was just like, holy shit, is this supposed to make some sort of sense? I didn't. So I, I thought didn't, the story was holy shit. Is this supposed to make some sense? And the art was absolute crap. Really? Because I oh. I got a very uh, like like proto burn type of type of vibe from it. Very similar to when I did that Americomics thing. Whatever the hell I can't yeah. even remember what was that like Captain no. Loser or whatever the hell it was. There I can't even remember what the name of that story or that character was. No, Scott. No, <laughs> I got I got the vibe of like some high school kid who was trying to make his own comic. 
<laughs> and then and then the the real kicker on it is, and I guess we'll probably never cover this now, but the real kicker on it is at the end of the book, and the artwork was just horrendous. The everything, every aspect of it was horrible. And at the end of it, they have like two pages where he's teaching people how to draw. <laughs> <laughs> how to draw comics the shit way. And you know what? In in that section, like his his where he's showing anatomy and stuff, he's fine. It's just in the actual book where it's just horrible. The horror. So have you been playing the Akinator? <laughs> no. I beat the Akinator. I, why I, do I, 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 I lived the adventure. Why do I have to live the adventure? <laughs> you, that's some I don't have to play it. I lived it. Actually, check that thing out after I heard you guys talk. <laughs> you guys wasted an hour of my life. <laughs> Sorry, no refunds. I see three files. There we go. All right, don't get too excited, but I'm podcasting shirtless, so topless, as it were. I gotta go. <laughs> well, it's, oh. it's your fault. You made me. You made me all conscious of the fan noise now. So now I don't have my fan on, and it's like 150 degrees in here. But who told yeah. you to move to Florida? <laughs> I'm with you, brother. I had to turn my fan off too because I was listening earlier to a Skype test call. I'm like, oh man, I can hear the fan. It's like like 20 degrees up here. I hear voices, and they sound like Mickey Mouse telling me to move to Florida. <laughs> to Florida. It turns out it was Mickey Mouse. Yeah, exactly. You still haven't brought us in. I know. Okay. I don't know if you know. Building a sense that of senility suspense thing. And, and anticipation. All right. <clears throat> Here we go. No more screwing around. Hello, and welcome to Back to the Bins. This is episode 99 and 917. <laughs> I am Scott Gardner. And joining me tonight, oh my goodness, we've got, uh, we've got all kinds of folks joining us tonight. We've got uh, our old buddy Paul Spataro. Hey, everybody. We have got Bill Robinson. Hello, hello. And we have Mike, but not the Mike you may be expecting. We have Surprise Mike. We actually have with us Mike Voiles of Mike's Amazing World of Comics. Hi, guys. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Uh, it's my first time here, so it's uh, kind of interesting to, to do this. I, I tried my own podcast once and uh, failed miserably, so <laughs> this will be a different experience. Is it still out there to be heard? Yeah, there's still like an old link on the website to it. Um, uh, I can send you a link after or during this show to, if you want to listen to it. It's pretty horrible. <laughs> send, me a, send me a link and we'll put the link in our, in our show notes because I know I'd like to hear it. And now I'm sure the listeners will be curious to check it out as well. So, yeah, absolutely. I'm sorry, Paul. I think I walked on you before. What were you going to say, buddy? Oh, no, he said, he said it'll be a new experience because he failed miserably. And I said, we do that every week. What are you talking <laughs> every about? Week. Yes, welcome to the show. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we are going to go ahead and jump right into this for time reasons. Um, thank you very much to Jason Trenner. We got both your emails, buddy. We will be covering those on a future episode, I promise. And uh, we're considering your idea for episode 100, just to let you know. Um, by the way, I think Jason is the only one so far uh, that has submitted an idea to us for episode 100. So the reason you keep getting these fractions, folks, is we just don't know what the hell we're going to do for episode 100 yet. So keep those uh, letters and postcards coming, as they used to say. 
So with that, we're going to go ahead and dive. Oh, wait, real quick before we dive right into it. You remember last episode, at least I think it was, was the, the last episode we recorded is the last episode that went up, right? The one with, yep. I did Godzilla and you did um, James Bond. James Bond. All right. So I couldn't remember if we had an episode in between or not. So I, out of pure curiosity of the way that story ended, I went ahead and read Godzilla number eight. I'm not going to give a detailed synopsis or anything. Don't worry. But uh, yeah, it didn't have the payoff that that awesome finale setup, you know, put in place. I really thought, oh, man, this is going to be awesome. And yeah, it's kind of stupid. So well, that stinks because I still yeah. hadn't gotten to that, but I still was hopeful. It's it's worth a read. But it's more really goofy than really awesome. And the end of the thing is, is kind of like, Shane, come back, Shane. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty lame. But that's that. And I'm going to turn it over to uh, Bill for our first review, a Marvel comic book. Ah, yes. And we are reviewing Fantastic Four 248. And this information I picked up for the book comes from... Mike's Amazing Comics. Cover date, November 1982. All right, so this one on sale, August 17th, 1982. Cover price, 60 cents, 32 pages. Editor was Jim Scullop. Um The title of this book is Nightmare, and John Byrne is the writer, the penciler, and the inker. The letterist is Rich L. Rick L. Parker. Colorist is Glennis Ween. In parentheses, Oliver. Uh, you could find this reprinted in Fantastic Four Visionaries Volume 2 trade paperback. And on the front cover, um, it looks like uh, something is giving the FF and Black Bolt the hairy eyeball. So. <laughs> that was horrible, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, look at that cover. Actually, that's much better than the other part of the, the cover that I always focus on, which looks like. It, it looks, yeah. Melting. Well, that's what I had thought. It looks like she's covered in something, but that's okay. Just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't even thought that. Uh, <laughs> anyway, all right. Here, here goes the synopsis. The creature from the Black Lagoon, or as we know him, Triton, is swimming through ancient water passages beneath the lunar surface. He comes across a crystal structure like many others he has seen before he senses it is different when he approaches the object it emits a blinding light we next see a celebration taking place for the birth of a daughter to the royal house of the inhumans lockjaw has brought the ff to the moon they comment on the recent move of the city at atalan at you know i can never i've never I think said it's that atillan atalan atillan Anyway. I always thought it was Attilan, but I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Attilan the Hun to, anyway. <laughs> to the blue area of the moon from its um, its previous hiding place in the Himalayas. The Himalaya, much like the riot at the uh, at the state fairs. You guys ever ride the Himalaya? Nope. No? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. Yeah, the one that goes forward and backwards. You know, dun, 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 the Himalaya. Everybody ride. Anyway, back to <laughs> <laughs> Too much yeah, we're getting done by midnight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm trying to rush. All right, no, we're trying to rush. That's, that's all right. <laughs> the royal family arrives to greet their guests: Black Bolt, Medusa, Gorgon, and Karnak, who has recently returned from his time on the Tonight Show. 
Welcome I was just going to say, wasn't that Johnny Carson's character on The Tonight Show? Oh, my God. <laughs> See, I've beaten you to all your jokes. <laughs> Oddly, Triton is not among them, but we know why. <clears throat> Excuse me. They are escorted to Crystal and Pietro to see their newly born child, which they have named Luna. Good thing she wasn't living on Earth or she might have been called Terra. Or if they were in a sewer, well, we won't go any further. <laughs> Pietro and Johnny discuss the, uh, the Torch's previous relationship with Crystal. Awkward, to say the least. Uh, Johnny is uh, a bit melancholy. Because he's pining over his uh, recent lady that he has lost, uh, which you guys, I'm sure you're familiar with that, that storyline. He had just uh, lost Nova to Uh-oh. We seem to have lost Bill into the ether. Bill. Can you now hear me now? Fine. Yep, now we hear you. Basically, we yeah. got to the point where you asked us if we remember the the storyline with Galactus, and then you totally kind of <laughs> went out on Freaked us. Out. <laughs> okay, anyway. Well, do you guys remember that? Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> okay. It was like two minutes ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Well, before Johnny can continue, everyone is suddenly tossed about the room. Uh, Reed Richards' new persona as Captain Obvious states, gravity disruption. <laughs> All right, now I got to catch my place where I was in a book. This <laughs> is just going great. I'm glad I produced notes and everything. Jesus. <laughs> However, this is no small disruption. No, the moon has done a space 1999 move 17 years before it was supposed to. Apparently, the other members of the team have alternate personas as well, like Reed's. Ben has become Mr. No Kidding, pointing out that the moon is doing a Space 1999. Not to be outdone, Reed points out, this is an incredible tractor beam that no known tech could produce. Sue and her new guys as no shit, Sherlock, points out an approaching craft that dwarfs the moon and in fact takes it into a holding room. The four are astounded at the sight before them as massive mechanical arms hold the moon in place and subsequently return the gravity to the moon and they all fall to the ground. Ka-thump. The Inhumans EFF spread out to assess the situation. Johnny goes for an aerial view. Amazingly, now there is uh, there's an oxygen atmosphere that allows Johnny to fly below the moon to see that it is crumbling away. Meanwhile... <coughs> Black Bolt has gone to a museum storing their old flying crafts that were based on Kree technology, to which Ben takes to immediately. Reed and Ben exchange some words, and Ben discovers a new pop single that goes like this. All the analyzing in the world ain't gonna count for diddly against whatever built this moon eater. Hold the applause, please. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> oh, the, cut, cut to the quick. The words of the words of Ben Grimm hang heavy on the hearts of the of the four companions as the ship skins skims in for an easy landing, and gratefully they don't have to tell him how bad his singing was. Unlike you guys. Reed continues to sport 
spout science babble about size and proportion. Okay, Reed, we get it. We know why they call you Mr. Fantastic, Sue told us. Ben points out <laughs> what seems to be a, a door. Oddly, Reed has not noticed it before. Before no, another word can be said, in walks... Okay, Scott, would you like to put your joke in here before I take it from you? <laughs> no, go ahead. Okay. Droopy Dog, the alien spaceman. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to cough. <laughs> Sue points out that he must be 5,000 miles tall. Well, I had another musical interlude cute here, but uh, now I don't know if I want to do it. <laughs> oh, come on. Well, it, uh oh, it sounds like I'm cutting out again. You guys still there? Yep, I'm here. We hear you. And I must be 5,000 miles, <laughs> miles tall to be the giant alien to walk through the door. Okay. The curious alien begins to examine the crumbling moon, unaware of the devastation he is wreaking upon the city of Paul. Attilan. Thank you. Or Adeline. As <laughs> as Johnny returns to the group, Reed suspects something is wrong, as everything that happens is too fantastic to, to be real. They all look to see ships rising from the moon to attack Droopy. They have no effect. Reed, looking far away, looking for a way, bleh, Reed, looking for a way to communicate with the craft, gives Black Bolt an idea. Using his powerful voice, he calls off the attack ships. Reed is puzzled why Black Bolt did not cause more destruction. <clears throat> Here are their monarch's words. They return to the moon. The alien that has been... Oh, man, I am losing it. <clears throat> Hold on a second. <laughs> I heard that. The, the alien, hearing the voice, investigates and from his uh, droopy utility belt pulls out a canister of raid. Johnny decides <laughs> to keep his attention with a Nova Blast. Unfortunately for Johnny, Droopy's made of his asbestos and swats him like the little pest that he is. Reed still questions what is happening. Is he being too analytical? Meanwhile, the alien insect spray surrounds the remaining heroes. Sue uses her force field, but to no avail. It eats right through it. The thing, meanwhile, is trying to rip the wall apart to find a way out. The alien, seeing this, picks up a piece of metal to see what caused it. Ben, dangling from the small piece of metal in front of the alien, unfortunately is too small to be seen, and the alien chucks him over his shoulder, and he spends the next day falling 5,000 miles. <laughs> now, Sue has succumbed to the gas as her bones are turned to liquid. Reed shouts out, no! <laughs> and suddenly, <laughs> they are all back in. I'm, gonna, I'm trying to come up with a third way to say it. I can't think of one. Attilan. Each of them, each of them tells stories of how they saw the others die. Each one more horrible in its, than the last. They are at a loss to tell. <clears throat> they are lost to what force could have caused this mass hallucination. Much like we don't know how many licks it takes to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll Tootsie Pop, the Fantastic Four may never know. But we know. As Triton rises before the crystal in the grotto, he feels that another was with him in his battle. Another was. It was Reed Richards and his denial of what he saw and the power of the emotion of love that saved a day. 
like Huey Lewis said, that's the power of love. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> oh, come on. And he thinks he's going to play song pop with us. <laughs> that's right. You are talking about Scott, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you you aren't offended by Huey Lewis the way Scott is. I, I didn't see any category in there where it was just, uh, you know, soundtracks from movies. They do have movie songs, but not, not scores. Uh, yeah, that's true. Well, they do have video games on Song Pop. Yeah, hmm. that's, I, I would fail miserably on that. <laughs> All right, so... Uh, do we have time to go through uh, any anything we want to look through specifically in the book? I mean, it's it's lovely burn artwork. It's gorgeous. Yes, this is the I, this is a great standalone book, and I always remember this story. If there's an ant crawling on something or a bug, when I go to flick it with my finger, I think of the giant alien smashing Johnny Storm. <laughs> and go ha. Whack. I'm always disappointed that it doesn't take the ant a full day to fall to the floor, though. (laughs) Oh, my laptop. That's that's that old joke where uh, the guy comes out on his front porch and sees an ant and walks across the street, picks it up, walks across the street, and puts it down. Two days later, he has a knock on the door. He opens up the door. No one's there. He looks down. He sees the ant. Ant looks up to him and says, what the hell was that all about? Um, as far as the story itself, though, I too remember this one. I, I think I bought this one off the stands, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, and I, I I love the the art. I love some of the moments in the story. But this is one of those I always thought was one, actually one of the weaker issues of of Burns X Men, or excuse me, Burns uh, FF rather, only because it doesn't really play into the to the continuing narrative that he had, a, he kind of had going on at the time. You know, there was a lot of stuff happening. Well, in the it might've just, it hmm. might've just, it might've just been a filler. I mean, it does co- bring in the, uh, the birth of, uh, of Luna into the, mm-hmm. you know, so it does, it does tie in that way, but I mean, it, it may have just been a filler, but what's I find kind of in, in, interesting about it is how, it's uh, it's so fantastic and over the top. It's like it's Stan Lee wrote it with some of the things that happened because some of the stuff is st- things that you would expect from Stan Lee. And Byrne is saying, you know, he's got Reed, at, you know, as the foil going, wait a minute, how can this be happening? This isn't physically possible. There's no way we could see this happening over there. There's no way this guy could be this tall. It would crush upon his own weight. There's no way Johnny could fly around the moon. This 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 can't be real. Right. Yeah, th- th- there's there's a lot of stuff like that in it, but also just the, you know, when when Byrne took over, one of his his whole things was to try and recreate the Lee Kirby magic with the FF, and it, it, to me, it's reminiscent of the issues when you know they would just have a one off where all of a sudden they would meet the Cree uh, Sentry or Ronan the Accuser, and there would be no explanation as to exactly who they were or anything. It's just something that was in Kirby's mind that he drew, and mm-hmm. and you know Lee scripted. Uh, and and you know then later on the the mythos of those characters was eventually developed, but at the time they were kind of one and done throwaways. 
I like the page with the um, that that starts out with your the view is from the moon in the city, and you you see the ship in the distance, and then the perspective slowly changes as the ship gets closer. You pull out from the city, and then the ship's closer, and you're pulling out, and now you're just above the moon, and then it keeps it switches all the way through until finally the moon is just a tiny speck and it's going inside the ship. Yeah, that's, mm-hmm. I think that's well done, too. Yeah, the artwork is great. There's, there's no doubt about it. I mean, I think he did kind of, you know, if, if Droopy Dog Face had uh, become a, a, an ongoing character, then it definitely would have had the Lee Kirby thing. But, you know, it, it becomes almost forgettable. Because and he's got, that, he, he's got that Batman utility belt on, too. Yeah. A couple of things with the artwork that I noticed. Uh, when they show Luna, it, it, I just thought it was kind of ironic that they're on the moon because she looks like the Watcher. <laughs> <laughs> well, they've and, never revealed it officially, but uh, but uh, Uwatu is uh, is really the father of the baby. I, I love the way the way Byrne makes you know, especially with the FF, more than any other time that he drew that he he you know he he has everybody very slender, uh, especially. Quicksilver, who should be very, very slender, considering mm-hmm. what his superpower is. And I, I just like that. Uh, I like the way when you have a long shot how the thing, his, his individual plates kind of disappear. Uh, and, and where I normally would attribute that to laziness on an artist, that they didn't feel like drawing them. In this instance, I, I think that's kind of exactly what it would look like. From close up, you'd see the individual plates, and from far away, he'd be more of kind of an amorphous orange colored thing right uh and 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 it, i think it just plays really well um he had a similar uh, visual thing that he used to do with spider-man that i would really like where spider-man from a distance you couldn't see the webbing and i always thought spider-man looked really cool that way you know in those in those long shots that burn would do yeah burn has a way of of taking out detail to add to the image instead of taking out detail out of laziness even like you know johnny going nova Mm-hmm. You know, without the flame lines, and you know, then he lets the colorist do their job and make it look, you know, cool. So, I mean, that's why we all like Burns so much. Mike, uh, do you remember what issue it was of either Batman or Detective that had a very similar story to this? It was something like the House That Haunted Batman, or something like that, where. Batman was having some sort of hallucination or something, and he saw Robin melt, and he kept dying over and over. Because that's that's what this story really reminds me of very strongly. It would have been Detective Four Seventy Seven, I want to say, which had just a new framing sequence uh, around a reprint because the most of the story was a reprint, and then there was a uh, a new wrapper essentially around it. Right. But yeah, I remember that story plays very similarly to this where Batman keeps denying, you know, this can't be happening, this can't be happening, yet he finds himself unable to escape from, you know, the dream or or whatever it is that's going on with him, kind of similar to how Reed is in this. I, I kind of see this as basically the, the FF version of that story. But I mean, I, I like it. I like both of them for... You know, just the the unique imagery you get here. You know, Sue melting in Reed's arms is very similar to to Robin melting in Batman's in in that particular story. That's the one with the Neil Adams cover of Robin melting. Yes. Or am I yeah. Thinking of the yeah, wrong that's one? the one. Yeah, I can't that's remember a what great what cover. 
Yeah. I can't remember where that originally appeared, but yeah, Mike's right. It was reprinted in uh, in that detective issue as well. The original was uh, Detective 408, which had the Adam cover. The reprint had a uh, Marshall Rogers cover. Marshall Rogers, that's right, yeah. Well, my uh, my favorite issue of FF of all time is the one right after this. It's it's actually one of my favorite comics of all time, which was two forty nine Man and Superman that they advertised for on the on the last page. That's just a fantastic issue, and I I got to get around to covering that at some point. Is that all we got on this one? Yeah, I pretty much. I think uh, I think in the shot where uh, the thing is hanging in front of the creature's eye, I think the thing's having performance. Issues. This is no good. I'm too small. Too small. <laughs> Poor Alicia. <laughs> That's it? That pebble? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, did you have anything on uh, FF248? I haven't. Um, I can tell you that the Inhumans are one of my least favorite uh, Marvel <laughs> teams. Um, right up there with like the Eternals. Um, Preach so, it, brother. Yeah. I didn't actually oh. start reading FF until probably Secret Wars 2, I would say, is probably when I started reading FF. And I read them then through probably like 94 or so. So um, a lot of the earlier Burn stuff I have, but I haven't read it. So I would I recommend any liked... of the Burn stuff to yes. you. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But I thought everybody liked Karnak. <laughs> See, I, I like the Inhumans. I do think they are often unfulfilled potential. Uh, I think my like of the Inhumans is the fact that when I first started, that was when uh, the series, when they had their own series drawn by George Perez. And, you know, much like John Byrne, George Perez to me can hardly ever do any wrong. Mm-hmm. So are you, they, are you talking when, when the Inhumans had their own solo book? Yes. Perez worked on that? Yes. Well, I didn't know that. Uh, I didn't see, you may, you may, you may develop a new appreciation for the Inhumans now. Uh, maybe not, but... <laughs> now, the, the Eternals, on the other hand, I also think is a lot of unrealized potential, but it remains unrealized potential to this day where I don't think any series has ever captured it uh, to the point where, you know, you'd, where, where it would be like something you'd look back on and say, oh, that was a really good book. The Inhumans have had the occasional really good book. Now, the Eternals, is that the one where it's kind of like the Marvel version of the New Gods, like with Isaiah yep. and all? Okay, yeah. yeah, I never liked them either. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I, I could see the potential there, but I just don't think anybody's ever reached it. Right. I kind of like the art, uh, the, the recent series they had, what was it, about the past 10 years with uh, John Romano Jr.? did yeah some of that wasn't bad yeah, i've heard good things about that i just is that a who, who i don't recall who wrote that that's not game that was game it, Gaiman. it was yeah. game yeah i you know I, I i know that people you know this makes me an unsophisticated uh dope but i'm not the biggest neil gaiman fan i haven't really read a lot of his stuff either i mean but i mean what i have read has been i've enjoyed i mean i i you know i've Scene, uh, or he did an episode of Doctor Who last season, which was pretty good too. I've always considered Gaiman kind of, kind of like Grant Morrison without the pretentiousness. You know what I mean? He doesn't come across as like a big asshole, 
but he still leaves me with the same feeling of going, was that supposed to be good and make sense? Because it kind of didn't, you know? So mm. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Now we're going to get a flood of mail. I was going to say, oh. <laughs> oh, let's hit that part out. I mean, I'm not saying I don't like the guy. It's just most everything I've read of him, I've just kind of been like, hmm, okay. I'm not saying I don't like him. Just everything I've ever read is crap. <laughs> right. Exactly. That's exactly what I was. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. <laughs> I've actually I've actually read quite a bit of game, and I've read pretty much everything he's done for DC, and I've read a couple of his novels, and uh, he's actually one of my favorites. In fact, I would say Sandman is probably like the best extended story, you know, more than a couple issues that I, I on. It's probably top of my, you know, most most loved comic stories list. I really do need to sit down and read that one yeah. day. I never have. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I was oh. going to say. I, I yeah, really he... have never made the time to, to to try to delve into it. I've got a lot of issues of it. I just, I guess, my oh, thing is I've always been waiting to get like a complete run so I can sit and just you know read it in one fell swoop, and it's just never, never materialized. Have you read sixteen oh two, Scott? Yeah, yeah. You know what? That yeah, was, I that was enjoyed. I forgot that was him. Yeah, I did enjoy yeah. that quite a bit. I thought that was. And normally, I don't like those kind of stories. You know, I, I don't even remember now how or or you know, why that fell in my lap, but I did read that and, uh, and I actually enjoyed it quite a lot. I had read yeah. his novel, the American gods and I, I don't know. It left me cold. I'm trying to remember. There was, I mean, I, now I'm, I'm going to sound like I'm waffling, but I mean, I, I, he's, it's not like I dislike him or anything. It's just, I, off the top of my head, I just couldn't think of anything I, I had read of his that that really jumped out at me, I guess, was the big thing. But I, I'm sure if I looked him up on, I don't know, Wiki or something, I'd end up finding something and go, oh, yeah, I forgot he did that. You know, just like 1602, I forgot that he wrote that. And I really did like that. So, But, yeah, I was not saying what Paul, what Paul said. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't say everything he wrote. Was, I just said that I, I often, when I, whenever I would read something of his, I would just often walk away, just kind of scratching my head and going, okay, I just, all right, whatever. But anyway, what do you got? Yeah, there's, oh, I was just saying, there's not any really good ads in this, in this mag either. Is there not? I, no, that's nothing really special. Out. No, oh, that's okay. I got some doozies in my issue. Actually, the ads are better than the issues. So, <laughs> all right, well, I am bringing to the table world's finest number 221 from February of 1974, back when comics cost a whopping 20 cents. The cover is by Nick Cardi, and it shows Superman and Batman arguing in the background while their two super sons are <laughs> in the foreground heading towards the reader. I thought it was a dynamic cover, and it's set to catch the eye of an 11-year-old reader, which is what I was when it came out, and it filled its purpose as far as I was concerned. Uh, the interior Jr. has a fat head, just like <laughs> Christian Bale, dude. Well, maybe that's where they got the uh, inspiration. Maybe, maybe, all right, maybe I need to revise then. Maybe it's a, a uh, Nick Hardy-inspired uh, movie. But the uh, interior story is titled Cry Not for My Sus Forsaken Son. It's written by Bob Haney, the hero of the Silver Age, and penciled by Dick Dillon, Scott's favorite. Inked by Murphy and love him. <laughs> that, Dick like, Dylan. All kind of way. 
the story opens on a two-panel two splash page, and on the left you see Superman Jr. being lectured by his mother, while Clark, who is sitting and reading the newspaper, agrees that he should not be going out to be a superhero and should, should instead be studying. On the right, we see a similar scene unfolding at the Wayne home, and as the two sons argue with their parents, we're shown a brief flashback to their two prior adventures. The two sons defy their parents and leave. They rendezvous in Gotham City, where they speak in cool teen speak of the day. They see a police car chase, or a police car involved in a chase. The two junior heroes intervene and capture the perpetrator. And it turns out that conveniently, Commissioner Gordon himself was involved in the chase and starts to question the perp, who's a teen named Danny Orr. At the two junior heroes' request, the teen is released into their custody. Danny says that his dad is a nobody, and he takes the two teen heroes to show them his dad, who works as a doorman. He says that his mom is dead, and he just found out that he's adopted. His real dad is a rich dude named Mark King. The kid goes to see Mark King, who welcomes him, while the two junior heroes investigate his life. Bruce Jr. finds out that Mark King and Jack Orr, the kid's adopted father, were partners. While they were off prospecting in Central America, they got word that Mark's wife, who both of them conveniently had loved, died in childbirth. Jack goes back to take care of the child because Mark is needed for his expertise at the dig that's going on. Of course, King claimed the mine for himself and cut Orr out. Orr didn't fight because he valued the child's upbringing more than the money. We come back to Danny and King spending time together, where you could just kind of see a montage scene in a movie and hear some kind of real lame music. Uh, the kid takes on the name Danny King, and he goes to the jungle to learn the family business. When he does, Superman Jr. and Batman Jr. stow away on the plane. They see that the mine workers are mistreated and kept in a concentration camp-type condition. They observe one trying to escape and being shot down. Of course, Danny is told that the man was trying to steal emeralds, which were conveniently planted on the dead man's body after he was shot. Danny goes back to his quarters, and they show him that the workers who were brought in with an, a misleading ad promising high wages and ideal conditions. And anybody who would answer the ad that they show in this book has just kind of got to be an idiot. Danny, Danny doesn't believe them, so Superman Jr. tunnels under the workers' barracks to show them and uh, to show Danny, and when they go back, they go into the barracks, he finds his foster father there, and it turns out that an old friend of his smuggled out a letter asking him for help, and he used a phony name to get hired and, and into the barracks. As they argue over what is true, a brigade of guards start towards the barracks. The guards shoot men and use hydraulic mining hoses against the workers. The junior heroes join the battle, and while Superman Jr. takes out the equipment, Batman Jr. sees that Danny and his foster father are taken away. He finds Danny locked in his quarters, and they hear a radio report that, the government, that government forces are on their way to put down a revolt at the uh, camp. Meanwhile, Jack Orr is placed unconscious in a mining car with emeralds planted on him, which appears to be the uh, plan that they use on everybody. No matter what happens, you want to kill somebody, you just throw some emeralds on him, say he stole something. And uh, they plant them on him, and they, they put him in the car to kill him and to try and claim that he was a thief. Danny drives a Jeep with Batman Jr. on it and catches up to the speeding mining car. Batman saves the unconscious man, and they're immediately attacked by Mark King's men and, and shot at and have to use a river to escape. However, as they do, they reach the sea, where they're surrounded by circling sharks. 
just as what the f- <laughs> yeah are there sharks in the tropics yeah they're wrong. They're wrong. Oh, okay <laughs> okay that's what i get for relying on jaws 4 for my information about sharks i guess it's sharks you made me there's sharks in hawaii <laughs> okay yeah just as the four sharks head towards in an equally distant way <laughs> Superman Jr. Days later, Danny confronts Mark King, and King basically admits all, but says that no one can prove it. Danny pulls out a document in which Mark King ordered Jackal's death, and the junior heroes keep the thugs from attacking him. Danny and his foster father agree to go back to the way things were before and walk off as the two young heroes watch. And you could almost hear the Bruce Banner music while they were away. That's the end. Very I saw this as an example of how DC started the Civil Silver Age with the introduction of the Flash, and by this time Marvel had moved into the Bronze Age. DC was still firmly planted in the Silver Age. Yes, <laughs> they, they probably took five years longer than Marvel to come out of that and, and into a slightly more sophisticated storytelling. But I was 11 years old when this came out, and I there's a new book stand and I loved it and you're not going to tell me it's bad now I've never read this particular issue but I actually liked the Super Sons idea quite a bit I've got a, a good number of, uh, of World's Finest from this era. as a matter of fact the bulk of the issues I've got are World's Finest or from this era and a number of them have Super Sons stories and I always got a kick out of them I mean I haven't looked at them since I was a kid so I don't know what I would think of them today just looking, you know, and following along with your synopsis, I'm, I tend to think I'd be like, "Oh my lord!" But well, you suppose I think you're supposed to be. I, I don't think you know. I, I Bob Haney, come on. <laughs> oh yeah, just the way he wrote stories. But I, but I thought you know, like in 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 some ways, this was almost more sophisticated than the other ones because I thought you know, instead of just playing on the dynamic between Batman Junior and Superman Junior and their parents. Uh, they they had another father and son thrown in there to kind of show you know a, a little bit of a, a uh, contrast between the right. way they are where other people are you know I mean Bob Haney's method of trying to portray a teenager was just kind of silly. Well, but Bruce Jr.'s constant use of this ridiculous lingo and calling Superman Clark baby instead was just like painful. I'm like, oh, come on, just stop it. It's but the I, same during the Teen Titans of the day. I mean, you, you know that I, I'm I'm not a fan at all of, of Dick Dillon's art. I, I respect the guy as a workhorse artist that drew a hell of a lot of issues and and. By all accounts, you know he was he was quick and uh, and reliable and a really good guy and all. I just his art style has never really struck me. However, him paired up with uh, Murphy Anderson in this, I really actually really dig the art in this. I think these guys are a terrific pairing because I'm looking at the art here and Superboy is, or Superman Junior, whatever he's called, especially reminds me a lot of um, I think the guy's name was Bob Brown that did a lot of the issues of Superboy during the era that I like best of the, of the Superboy title. And so I like that. And, and it, right, you know, right down to the hairstyle that Superman Jr. has, because he doesn't have 
his father's hairstyle, you know, he's got the spit curl S and all that. He's got more of like a, like it's all swooped to one side, like a wave to one side. And I really like that. That's how Superboy was drawn from around this same time. And Bruce Jr. reminds me a lot of, uh, of Nightwing and especially like from right around this general time period when, um, Robin of Earth 2 you know was introduced as an as an older man and everything he kind of reminds me of that that visual style and also I like it from a from a visual perspective the stories you know stories a whole different story and the 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 father the you know villain father whatever you want to call him reminds me an awful lot of um what was that character the human target oh yeah yeah he does look a little uh I can't think of what the character's name yeah, was, but I know. Like something Chance or something. I can't remember. Chance. Yeah. Yeah, he does. He reminds me a lot of him. I think it's the I, sideburns. I mean, I do think that there's a uh, a huge concession to the done-in-one story to try and stick a lot in here mm-hmm. and, and have plot developments just, you know, expedite them in a way that's unrealistic. You know, uh, how quickly Danny, you know, drops out and goes over with his real father and, you know, everything just go, turns on a dime, basically. Uh, I, I really thought it was funny to have Commissioner Gordon in on the high-speed chase for really no reason. <laughs> uh, you know, I didn't think the police commissioner actually does that very much, but, you know, whatever. Uh, I, I thought with the teens, I thought he went out of his way to draw them kind of more slim than you would a uh, grown man. Right. And I thought that's, you know, a lot of times when... when People draw younger people. All they seem to do is give them a bigger head in in relation to their body. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I I like to see that. You know, I mean, as some of us get to be older and older, you notice that you know people fill out. They have just more more you know thick bodies as they get older, uh, and you know, same goes for their faces and everything. And and I think he you know it did show up in the artwork. I also he kind of like a, had almost a like a what I would call the house style for the day. Right. So, I, you know, uh, I'm, I'm kind of glad that you didn't dislike the art in this issue because I didn't think it was bad at all. Well, I'm a big fan of Murphy Anderson, so I, I think the Murphy Anderson inks really uh, really lent it a style that I, I dig a lot. And, and plus, like I say, it really does remind me very heavily of the, of the Superboy stuff that was coming out around this time that I've always been a fan of. I I love that stuff. Goofy as it is, I I really enjoy that stuff. Now, you have this as an actual paper issue, correct? I have it as a paper issue. I also have the trade paperback, The Sons of Superman and Batman. Yeah, I was going to mention that this stuff got reprinted. I've been meaning to pick up that trade if I can ever find it on the cheap. I'd really like to read it, you know, all the stories all in one, you know, one fell swoop. I'm just wondering, in your actual paper issue, is page 14 miscolored? I don't have the paper issue in front of me. Oh, okay. No, that's all right. Because yeah, I'm looking really at it. It's colored here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, my paper copy, it's the red The red coloring is, is pretty dominant on that page. Yeah, something. It, it almost looks photo negative-ish in, in a weird sort of way. But, yeah, it's like Superboy's got like a serious sunburn in that second panel. Well, first I thought they hit him with hot water or something. What is yeah. That? They scald him? What's, <laughs> why is everything red? Ow, 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 ow! 
I, I did have a couple of artistic uh, complaints with it, although I like the art overall. Uh, at the bottom of page two, I really don't like the way Bruce Wayne's face looks. The, the mouth is drawn just, it's kind of like squeezed into the picture. Uh, on page 11, the, the, the physics of the tunnel that Superboy is, uh, Superman Jr. Is, is digging just make no sense because I think that would have collapsed about three feet into it. <laughs> he gets to the other side and turns to say something to Batman, and Batman's suffocated. Did you know that Superman actually had a power that was identified called Super Boring? <laughs> There's a couple stories from the 50s where they use that power and they call it super boring. I think some of my salsa studies teachers had that power too. I I, just, I, I don't doubt that he could uh, that he could dig a tunnel really fast, but I just don't know where his superpower is going to keep that from collapsing the way that they drew that. But then uh I don't know if you guys ever listened to uh the Super Future Friends podcast or not. Oh, they haven't yes, had an episode out in forever and a day, so I'm hoping they hear this and get off their butts and put out a new episode because I love that show. But they make a habit of pointing out tunneling, and it's ridiculous. It's like every issue, Super Mo- Superboy or Superman tunnels. <laughs> it's like it was a prerequisite. Like They had to have certain things... In every gold, you know, Silver Age Legion story, you know, they had to have statues and they had to have tunneling, and it was, it's, it's really wild. I never noticed it before until they started pointing it out, and it's serious. Like every single story has the same thing. It's ridiculous. Well, look, look at the page where he's doing the tunneling here too. Are you telling me? I mean, I don't care. There's no way he's doing that silently. So you're telling me it's more stealthy for him to dig a forty foot tunnel underneath the ground instead of just grabbing the two guys and carrying them over what looks to be about a seven-foot fence? <laughs> really? Why doesn't, on page uh, page nine, why did they have to hide in the crates to get there? Yeah, well, I, 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 <laughs> I'm taking that as, uh, super, since super, Superman Jr. is only half as powerful as his father, he probably couldn't fly that distance carrying Batman Jr., all right. So half of being able to push the moon around is still enough to deal with these assholes. Is all I'm saying. You know, maybe he, maybe he should have been there to fight the guy that that the EFF were encountering. List <laughs> push the moon around. My favorite part of this entire issue is the cover, dude. Because to me, this totally looks like the lead photo for one of those Yahoo news stories about some dust up at a, at a little league game. I love it. <laughs> I think, I think that may be me at one of my son's games. <laughs> Are you Batman or Superman? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, we know who Scott is. <laughs> the one with the fattest head. <laughs> uh, I love it. So, the, so is Clark ahead. Kent, and Bruce Wayne henpecked husbands? Yes. <laughs> You're Superman, for God's sakes. Stand up for yourself. Exactly. Uh, I, I can't yeah. see Batman putting up with that, but I sure can't see Superman putting up with that because there's so many ways that he could dispose of a bitchy wife that it's not even funny. Heat vision. <laughs> That's what the sun is for, you know? <laughs> I did like this story, Paul. 
I, I like I, the. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Bill. I I have not read a lot of the world finest from this era, and really the only thing that I've actually read with the Sons of Batman and Superman was uh, going back to John Byrne was when he did some of the uh, the Generations books he did, which I'm sure Mike yes. knows about those. Mike, do you know about those? Uh, what was the time frame with those? Was that like uh, in the 2000s? Uh, they were probably 90s, late 90s. There was a couple different series, too. Mm-hmm. There, there, was, there was three of them. Yep. One was where they aged, where they aged naturally. Right. Um, I think that was the first one. I'm not really sure what the other two series did. The first two series, Generations 1 and Generations 2, they, they told the story of the lives of Superman and Batman as if from their initial premieres in 1938 and 39, respectively, that they just lived the rest of their lives from those initial incarnations and they aged in real time and, and everything and they got married, they had children... And so that was kind of the conceit of that story. Is it was basically a what if story or an Elseworlds, if you want to call it that. It was an Elseworlds of right. you know what if what if Batman and Superman aged naturally from their initial debuts, and they're fantastic stories. It's p- particularly, I, I think, the first um, miniseries because it's it's a self-contained story. Um, they ended up doing the sequel or, or burn or burn was really pretty much the, the almost the single creative, Drive, you know, driving, like driving force, force behind it. Um, there was a sequel miniseries that, uh, is good in its own way and it fits in so that you can actually, you can read it either as a, another chapter or you can actually, because of the structure of the way the book was written, you can take the chapters of the second book and put it within the chapters of the first series and read it that way, which is I recently did that and it made it a, a much more interesting read. But ultimately, I'm of the opinion that the first one is all you really ever needed because it's it's just fantastic. The second one is kind of riding on its coattails and it's just not as good in my opinion. The third one I have and I have never read, but I, I don't think I've ever really heard anybody give a, a really glowing review of it i've heard you know varying degrees from eh, it was all right to it outright sucked but i don't think i've ever heard anybody say no it was really good but one of these i have read the around. third one and it's not as good burns art style is more of his lucy style that yeah. isn't very tight pencils and uh this the story takes it all the way up to the 30th century instead of being i think 10 years apart for the chapters and right book that i think they're a hundred years apart in the second book or in the yeah. third book excuse me doesn't it go backwards it goes backwards oh, from like the right. 35th century or some some ridiculous thing like that i can't remember i now. don't believe so i know burns done a couple of backwards in times books like that but i don't think generations is like that i think generation three was forward hmm yeah he i, did I that know it in the 30th century I need to read it soon because uh, because I like I say I've just reread the other two and now I'm curious to, to I've always been curious to read that third one but I wanted to read it you know fresh on the heels of reading the first two you know just so that I remember what was going on and everything and now that I've just done that I'll have to make that a priority but uh, um, so 
At so some this... point, Michael Bailey and I are going to do a show on that, which is the whole reason I just recently reread it. So, you know, I'd be fresh in my mind and I could take notes and all that. So no no time frame and when it's going to happen, but it is going to happen because he and I both love the uh, the original Generations uh, miniseries. So that, you know, be on, the, be on the lookout for that at some point. So with this, at the time that this came out, would this, well, they didn't have Elseworlds then, but was I mean, was this DC canon or DC? Well, I guess back then they didn't really have a set canon, which is what later brought about changes. But no, um, I, but I think it was effectively considered to be kind of you know an Elseworlds thing without Evidem saying it because you like know you knew in, in the real stories. world they didn't have their own ch- kids like that you know. Well, but the but back in this era before they had you know the official Elseworlds banner on anything you know, before that whole thing was created. DC kind of started the whole thing with what they used to call imaginary stories, stories yeah. which, you know, ever since, you know, whatever happened to the man of tomorrow, I, you know, I can't help but think of that Alan Moore quote of, you know, aren't they all, but, but that's yeah. what they called him. If they weren't in continuity stories, then, then they would dub them imaginary stories. And I was actually looking for that in the header to this story somewhere where it would say, an imaginary story or part of an imagine, you know, series of imaginary stories. And I, I, on a quick look, I, I'm not seeing it here anywhere, which kind of surprises me actually, because if you did just pick this up at random, I would think that that would confuse a kid that, Whoa, I didn't know, you know, Superman and Batman were married and had kids and all that. So I'm surprised there's not some sort of disclaimer unless I'm just missing it here somewhere. No, there's no disclaimer, but, I don't know. I, at the time, it didn't seem to throw me off at all. So, and I, you know, I wasn't necessarily the brightest kid in the world. So. <laughs> Give me a background on this. Um, DC did have a kind of an established continuity at this point with their multiple Earths, and the Bob Haney stuff. Um, Haney was one of the writers that didn't give a damn about whether the uh, right. whether continuity mattered or not. He just threw stuff into a story. So, editorial. Um, the editors essentially in the letters pages would essentially send the Bob Haney craziness um, not only here in World's Finest with Super Sons, but also with things like Brave and the Bold stories that didn't make any sense um, because they had like Wildcat from Earth 2 teaming up with Batman from Earth 1 without really talking about where they crossed over between Earths. Right. So they called this Earth B. Earth B, yeah. And it was never, um, Earth B was never referenced in a story, but in the letters pages, this would uh, be where things were commonly relegated, I guess you could say, um, to these stories that didn't necessarily make sense within the current continuity. But the Super Sun stories were actually explained in World's Finest 263, I think where they basically say that all the Super Sun stories were actually uh, took place within a computer simulation of the future. Yeah, that was uh, the uh, Denny O'Neill uh, explanation for these stories. Yeah, so they kind of explained them away to, <laughs> to you know, make them so they weren't part of regular continuity, but they, you know, didn't take place on some parallel or they were given a, an explanation of a, of a computer coming up with this, these stories. And see, I, I prefer them being on Earth B, personally. If I'm not mistaken, I think 
that where Earth B got quote unquote officially recognized was in one of the two um, indexes to Crisis on Infinite Earths. It was either the original one, the original uh, official you know in, index to the Crisis on Infinite Earths, or the uh, the crossover index to Crisis. But one of the two of them does have a whole chapter about alternate earths and basically why crisis happened and why they you know they felt it was necessary because it had gotten to this ridiculous point of not only did you have earth 1 earth 2 earth 4 you know and all these other ones but then you had alternate earth you know where the DC Marvel crossovers took over and you had you know earth B and you had you know earth there was one of them that was a designation that actually was like a number and a letter because that was an alternate earth of an alternate earth where animal characters happened and, st- and it was, it, it had just gotten out of control. So that's why they did the whole thing. But I'm pretty sure that's the first time I ever saw earth be recognized in an actual comic and not just, you know, some fanzine or something like that. Very cool. Well, I'll go ahead and dig into mine real quick here. Um, I was trying for the life of me to remember where I got this. I don't think I picked it up too long ago, but I could not remember. But uh, this was one when I picked it up, I was very excited about it, which surprises me that it wound up in the uh, unread bin because (laughs) this is what keeps happening. I keep picking these things up and I'm like, oh, I finally got this. And then I just bag it and board it. And then the next thing you know, it's years before I make it around to reading it. But anyway, we're going to go back to 1981 for this. This is, according to the Indicia, Charlton Bullseye, Volume 1, Number 1. Well, it's actually not. It's actually Volume 2, Number 1, which surprises me that they would say Volume 1. I, I have no idea why they did that on this, but there is actually a prior incarnation of Charlton Bullseye, and this is the second, the first issue of the second incarnation. It has a really nice cover on it by uh, Dan Reed and uh, Bob McCloud, of all people. And it's kind of a half-and-half half cover where one half of it, you've got the Blue Beetle dodging some, uh, I don't know if it's gunfire, laser fire, something, a bunch of guns are shooting at him, and he's jumping out of the way. And then on the other side, you've got this, uh, this shot of the question underwater, and there's this shark coming up to him that it's tough to tell, is this a robot shark, or is it a steel-clad shark, or some mutant or something? It was... Really interesting dynamic. I I couldn't tell exactly what was supposed to be going on. And I had assumed, by never cracking the cover on this, that this was going to be two stories in this book. I had thought... I'm kind of loosey-goosey on my information about the whole history of Charlton and the characters. I like these characters, but I only have spotty issues of, of their various runs. But I thought that this was the title where these characters came to live after they lost their own individual titles, and I'm not sure about that. But I thought that this was going to be two stories in here of each of the heroes. It actually turns out that this is the meeting between Blue Beetle and uh, and the question. They actually meet for the first time in this story, at least according to something that the uh, the question says. And again, I thought they had met prior to this, but I guess not. Anyway, the uh, the credits on this one are really strange. It's uh, the editor is actually listed first. The editor was George Wildman. Story by Benjamin Smith. Pencils by Dan Reed. The plot is credited to a committee. 
dialogue is credited to uh, Anon, O Mouse, so anonymous. Uh, sound effects by B. Pearson, inks by Dan Reed and Al Val, which I'm questioning whether that's a real name or not, and colors by Wendy Fior. And I'm not going to go into it terribly deeply because it's not a terribly deep story. As a matter of fact, it's a pretty damn run-of-the-mill story. I think the art is very, very nice. Um, through this whole thing, looking at the art, I kept trying to place who it reminded me of, and I was never able to quite pin it down. It reminds me of a number of different artists. It reminds me a little bit of Rich Buckler here and there. It reminds me a little bit of uh, Val Mayrick here or there, and, and different artists. I have a feeling that maybe this is a collaborative effort, even beyond the credits, that there may have been other hands in the art as well as in the story. But it's a pretty run-of-the-mill story of um, the question in his news team. You know, the question in his civilian identity as a newscaster. They show up to cover this story of, uh, I don't know, it's a bank robbery or something. And while they're covering the story, the Blue Beetle shows up to break up the, the, the robbery. So um, the question goes into action to assist. And during this whole thing, Blue Beetle comes to realize that the whole thing was a put-on to keep him busy and basically to draw his attention and keep him busy while someone absconded with his uh, flying ship called the bug. If you've ever seen Watchmen, that character in the Watchmen that has that flying ship, well, he's basically, he's the blue beetle. He's a night uh, owl. Night owl. That's it. Thank you. Anyway, this whole plot is by this guy that, uh, that blue beetle sent up the river some time ago called the Enigma. And he's out of prison now, and he's seeking his revenge, and he's used his fortune to set up this basically like a house of horrors type of thing. And Blue Beetle comes a-calling with the question in tow. And they have to go through this series of uh, very Indiana Jones-esque death traps where uh, the question ends up fighting a robot shark from the cover, and uh, Blue Beetle ends up dodging laser fire and things like that. Um, one of the silliest aspects of the whole story is where uh, the question figures out that the the robot shark must be controlled from remote control and that the eyes are more than likely uh, like cameras allowing whoever's operating it to see. So he covers it up with his jacket and the shark just smashes through the wall of this steel tank, you know, it smashes into it hard enough to actually bust it open. And I'm thinking, how much speed and momentum and pressure and all these other things would you have to have going with it it'd have to be like a torpedo to do that so i thought that was really silly anyway they both break free of their respective death traps they meet up back in this room where they find the bug it's all still in one piece everything looks okay and then this giant guy who reminds me of somebody from marvel but i couldn't remember what his name is he's the guy where if you giant punch man. him no, it's like the guy where you you punch him and he gets bigger or something like that. Uh, the gr growing growing man? man. That was it. The growing man. Yeah, that's totally who this guy reminds me of. He's this big giant guy and he's he's doing the typical "I'm gonna squash you like bugs" type of thing. And uh, the question distracts him while Blue Beetle gets into his bug, zaps the guy with a, enough electricity to take him out. And then a room full of, of bad guys run in and uh, Beetle and uh, the questioner just working their way through these guys. So finally Enigma gets so pissed off that he decides, all right, I'm just going to deal with this myself. He runs out in the other room 
tries to shoot our heroes, and that doesn't work out for him. So then basically he decides, all right, well, if I just can't do it any other way, then I'll just blow up the whole place and take us all out. <laughs> so he runs off to do that. Beetle and uh, Question jump into the bug, and they fly away just in time as the whole place goes kablooey. And in the last panel, it's pretty much a you know your typical well, and we make a pretty good team, don't we? And uh, and that is literally that. That's pretty much all there is to this story. It's very run of the mill. Um, I gotta say, I was kind of disappointed. I really thought that there'd be a little more meat to this, but maybe. I shouldn't have expected that because at the same rate, while it's not anything to write home about, it is, in a lot of ways, it's very representative of what Charlton was kind of like. Most everything I've ever read from Charlton is kind of like this. I'm I'm not saying they're bad, but a lot of their stories were kind of this. From what I've ever read of them anyway, they're just kind of run-of-the-mill superhero stories and i'm sure that you know because they were aimed at children that a child would read this and and you know get the thrills and the excitement and all that but reading it now you know as an almost 45 year old i just look at it and go wow this is really kind of infantile so i was disappointed in that aspect of it but the art i really enjoyed i i I really dug it a lot and this dan reed guy um i think if i'm not mistaken I think he shows up as an inker in some of the issues of Further Adventures of Indiana Jones that we're uh, going to get to eventually on uh, Star Wars Monthly Monday. So we'll be talking more about him in the future. But a couple of, uh, of really odd things that I wanted to talk about in this, beyond the this, this story, which, like I say, was kind of lackluster, was just some really odd things that were in the issue itself beyond the story, which was an ad page, which I'm scrambling to find. Would that be automatic mind control? No, no, no. Oh, I didn't. I don't even think I saw that one. No, there's a full page ad. I swear to God, I'm not making this up folks. I'm just going to read you a little bit of this. The ad, the, the banner at the top says how to wipe out your jinxes in 24 hours flat. This is just, this is just some of the ridiculousness of this. It says, I want to be honest with you right from the start. I really can't explain how my Nega Jinx discovery miraculously destroyed my everyday jinxes so quickly. But I can tell you this, it really works. Just a few weeks ago, nothing was going right for me. I was badly jinxed. I needed money fast. I was going into the hospital for an operation. I was very depressed. And worse, my boss wouldn't give me a raise. Yes, I was a physical and mental wreck. I walked around every single day waiting and praying for something to happen. Something that would change my bad luck to good luck. It was the lowest point of my life with no hope of changing it. Then, the miracle of Negajinx. Just as I was at my wit's end, it happened. Suddenly, with no warning at all, I stumbled upon Negajinx. I remember that day. (laughs) I'll remember that day as long as I live. (laughs) Like magic, everything started to turn around fast. How I discovered it is a secret I promise never to reveal, not even to my wife. So so kindly, never ask me. What I can reveal to you now is how Negajinx destroyed all my jinxes, minute by minute, once and for all, until every single one of them was gone. Surprise, my boss 
came through with a whopping raise and an unexpected $2,000 bonus. Surprise, my operation was a smashing success. I felt like a million dollars. No, make that $2 million. Surprise, I got out of my depression. Off we went for a grand vacation for the best time ever. And it goes on and on. I didn't make up any of that. That's that, that's are words from this actual ad. And I'm just reading this going, what fool sent $3 for this thing that's never adequately described in this ad at all? Now, maybe nobody ever did because I've never seen this ad before that I can recall. But I get the biggest kick out of this. This was, uh, it says, mail to Lucky Products, and it gives an address in New York City. $3 for this, which $3 to a kid back then was, you know, it's decent money. And it never... doesn't give you any description of what it is. Is it a necklace? Is it a, is it a you know, a, a, what do they call those? A motivational program? What is it? It doesn't tell you anything about it. And I I just thought it was crazy. Really, really. Uh, my luck didn't change at all. <laughs> I never got my three dollars back either, Paul. <laughs> it just uh, it reminds me of the uh, in Dennis Miller's stand-up bit. He talks about an ad, it's like avoid scams. Send ten dollars to. <laughs> and if you've ever wondered why people are so friggin' screwed up in the world these days, it's because, in my opinion. Across from page, ah, oh shit, the pages aren't numbered in this. Anyway, across from the page where, where the question is battling the robot shark, you get a full-page ad saying, men and women shed up to 20 pounds in a week, 50 pounds in a month. And then on the page that's fixed the editorial <laughs> page, you've got gain up to 5, 10, 15 pounds in a little cartoon thing down at the bottom, very reminiscent of the, uh, the kick and sand in the face I th- ad uh, I always used to love. It says, skinny men and women are not attractive. And a whole thing about how skinny is repulsive. So I'm going, well, wait a minute, I'm 8 years old and I'm confused as hell. Where, where am I supposed to, am I supposed to be fat? Am I supposed to be skinny? I don't know, I'm confused. It, what is this is where eating disorders begin. And then if that's not enough to make you just want to, you know, whatever, then you read the editorial page. And I'm not going to read this word for word, but I swear to God, just paraphrasing here, it basically says, you know, we realize that this issue kind of sucked, but we were on kind of a tight deadline, so we decided to throw it out there anyway. Again, not making that up. That's pretty much what it says. And I'm just like, wow, really? You're, you're going to admit that? <laughs> Okay, well, I'll be around for next issue. <laughs> um, this lasted, I think, six or eight issues, and I'm I'm amazed by that because, yes, it wasn't very good, and uh, and they weren't afraid to tell you that they thought that before they put it out too. So. I'm thinking Captain Catnip and Womble carried the day. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. But Rocket Rabbit. At the same rate, here I'm going to throw you another curveball in addition to the curveball about whether you're supposed to be fat or skinny. You decide. Um, If you do see this one out there on the cheap, because I'm sure I got this on the cheap, pick it up because the art really is nice. I liked the art a lot, and I love these two characters. I'm just beside myself with rage that DC just pissed all over these characters and actually did them both in a few years ago. But I loved the blue beetle in the question. And, uh, and it was nice just to revisit them again, even if it was a pretty lame story. That's all I got on it. What did you guys think? 
I think you said it all, to be honest with you. <laughs> I, 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 it, the artwork is nice. I think the artwork is almost, you know, like, I look at it, and, and I wouldn't have thought 80s. I, I would have thought 10 years earlier. Right. Uh, you know, it's, it's, got, it's almost got a little bit of a simplicity to it. There's certain panels that I'm not crazy about, but overall, I like it. I think it just flows nicely. Uh, the story is just kind of ridiculous. and. Mm-hmm. It's like you said. Ba- basically, every Charlton book. I don't, off the top of my head, I can't remember any Charlton book where I thought that was a great story. Right. And, you know, it, but you know, I think that was kind of the bane of the existence of independent books. You know, anything that wasn't Marvel or DC back then. I don't think they really developed, you know, independent books until the late '80s, early '90s, uh, to the point where they were putting out a quality product. You know, you, you might have a couple of exceptions to that rule, but I think as as, as a general thing, uh, anything that's not Marvel or DC before 1986 or so, it's probably, you know, very, more more miss than hit. I will agree. I will agree. Not that I was ever a big indie reader back then or, or even today, but uh, from what I have read and sampled of, of indies, I, I would have to agree. The only indies I can think of pre late eighties that that there were a couple of decent ones are uh you know the Pacific comics that they had come out with. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pacific and Eclipse had some decent stuff too, but you know, prior to the big indie boom, or at least what I, you know, always consider the big indie boom in like the the what was that, like the mid eighties or you know, early to mid eighties, before I even really understood the term indie and, and really considered things like you know Charlton and, and that sort of thing to be indies, yeah. They they were m- much like this. It was like they were also rands, but they they weren't particularly like with this story. It just feels like not only is it kind of run of the mill, but the just the internal logic of the story. It, it's like they weren't bothering to really make sense in the story. You know, it was like a series of events all strung together with with the very flimsy plot line just so that you would see the hero battling a robot shark and see the hero falling into a pit of fire and see the hero dangling from a helicopter and how they got there didn't have to make any sense so long as you got to see those beats of the story and that's cool when you're a kid i guess but when you get older you read it and just go really that that made no sense at all you know, but I mean, a kid, I, I don't expect would have really stopped to think about something about the the idea of an underwater object, how fast and hard it would have to be traveling to smash through a steel wall. You know, you but would maybe, just maybe hmm? that's the only more. Maybe that's the market they were trying to go for, though. Maybe that's all they can would care about. You know, maybe they didn't want the forty five year old man to be reading it. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, screw them. <laughs> That's all I got on this, though. Mike, you have been incredibly quiet this episode. We, we want to hear your thoughts, buddy. Well, as far as the, this issue goes, I um, actually have been like trying to read it while you guys are talking. So <laughs> <laughs> that's why it's, uh, I've been sort of quiet. Um, I actually haven't read much of the... Uh, even though DC did acquire these guys, um, you know, the Blue Beetle in the question, I have not read anything that, um, other than I think maybe a couple Blue Beetle stories from, like, when he appeared with Captain Adam back in the 60s. Right. 
So I haven't read most of this material before. Um, I have a couple issues of it, but I don't think I have this particular one. Um, but yeah, they are pretty bad. But I've always considered Charlton such. I don't consider them indie like you guys are calling them, but I just consider them very, very much a third-rate publisher. Right. Um, I and I believe from what I know of Charlton, like comics were sort of not their priority. I think they were just used to keep the presses running. Between, I think they did like adult humor magazines or skin mags or something like that. Right. And I know the presses that they used to print their comics on were the same thing they used to print like cereal boxes on. So they were always the the paper and the printing quality was always very poor. Right. So See, yeah. I've always been a big fan of the characters much more than the than the actual stories. There was something about their characters that seemed to kind of transcend the the lackluster stories and settings that they had and I, I was very happy when DC acquired these characters and for a time it really seemed like that they were going to do something with them and 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 they were going to be kind of power players in the DC universe for a very short short time that they were you know I mean, Blue Beetle got his own book that was very good in the beginning you know the question had a had a several year run that I highly recommend that's a great book and some of the other characters I'm sorry I said the Denny O'Neill series is very good, yes. Yeah, excellent stuff. And I mean, they were they were considered important enough that the play of their particular Earth, which I, if I'm remembering correctly, I think it was dubbed Earth 4 or 5. Earth 4, yes. 4? Yeah. And so they actually were were somewhat major players in the Crisis on Infinite Earths. I mean, their their Earth was one of the five that merge at the end of that story. So they really felt important in that in that overall context and i just consider it kind of a shame you know where we're at with these characters today many of them are around still in name only um but they're completely different incarnations of what they were when they were initially acquired by charlton and i don't know if that's a rights thing or what i i would love to get behind the the story on that to know exactly why they've all been replaced i you know because i know that you know, Blue Beetle's a different Blue Beetle today. The question's a female. Um, Judo Master's a female. Um, well, I'd argue that I'd argue that Superman isn't the Superman that I remember either. So, well, yeah, this is yeah. Very true. Good this point. Is very true. Um, but, I, but what I mean though is, I mean, these are entirely different people than what they acquired when they were the Charlton characters, and I can't help but think that that's got to. There's got to be a story behind it as far as it, it's some sort of rights thing. Maybe they were worried about paying royalties or or rights reverting back to the creator. Something's going on with that because I don't think that there's any one of those characters. In a quick recollection off the top of my head, I don't think any of those characters that they bought are the exact same um, identities today as they were initially then. I, I may be forgetting someone. I'm not sure. but um, Is Captain Adam? Have they changed Captain Adam? I haven't been reading 52, so I don't know if, if he's the same guy that they from then or, or not. So I couldn't tell you if, if the new 52 Captain Adam is the same one or not. I think right around the same time that they killed this question and replaced him with, uh, wasn't it Rene Montoya that became the question? Yeah. Um, right around the same time that that happened is when they went back and 
basically fixed their, you know, they, they basically toyed with continuity to go back to their original idea of it turning out to be Nathaniel Adam that fell to the dark side and became the monarch monarch. Yes. Thank you. I couldn't think of the character's name because that, that was in, in that Armageddon 2001 series. That's how that was supposed to end was that the whole conceit of that story is that this guy from the future comes back to stop, to find out the identity of, of a hero. He knows a superhero falls to the dark side and becomes monarch. He just doesn't know which one it is. So he comes back in time to find out who it is. And somehow the resolution of that story got leaked ahead of time to where everybody knew who it was. So at the very last minute, DC pulled the plug and switched it to Hawk from Hawk and Dove. And initially it was meant to be Captain Adam. Well, then you fast forward, you know, 20 years or whatever to that. I think that was Countdown where that happened. Was that Lightspeed that came back? It was, was that um, the character. No, it Wave was Rider. Wave Rider. Wave that was Rider. It. Yeah, right. Wave Rider. Yeah, and uh, I'm pretty sure it was Countdown where that finally happened, where basically continuity got toyed around with, and uh, and Captain Adam did become Monarch. And to the best of my knowledge, he's that's where he's at today. I, I but I don't know. I mean, I haven't followed the character closely since his initial series that he got. Right after Crisis, he had a series that ran, I don't know, 50, 60 issues or something. And it was actually pretty good from what I read of most of it. Pat Broderick um, for most, most of the early issues, I think. Yeah, fantastic stuff. I love Pat Broderick. He's, he's one of those underrated guys. Um, but then be, you know, beyond that, it, it, he kind of just had spotty appearances. He was in one of the J, uh, Justice League teams for a while. And then he had a, I think it was a nine issue miniseries where he was like touring the multiverse or something like that. And I think there's one, there's a, there's a, uh, Captain Adam Armageddon, I want to say, is yes, the Wildstorm universe. Yeah. Well, he also had 12 issues. I'm sorry. He also had 12 issues with the new 52. Oh, that's right. That's, yeah, I forgot about that. You're right. What was that called? That was, uh, no, I think it was just, just Captain, Captain Adam. Adam. Was it Captain? Yeah. Okay, I must be thinking of a different one. I was thinking of this one that had very minimalist covers on it. Breach was that the name of it? Didn't that have something to do with Captain Adam? Breach. Breach was the Captain Adam of an alternate universe. Oh. He would have been Captain Adam or something like that, but it, it wasn't the Captain Adam of the main DC universe. <laughs> Isn't this why we had the crisis to begin with? <laughs> um, there was some. I was just thinking about. It, and now I can't remember what my point was going to be. But oh well. But uh, perhaps this is Scott Gardner of an alternate universe. Characters. So I, I don't know if that's why you like their visual appeal in these stories or not. But they're both Ditko creations. Um, that he did in the '60s after he left Marvel. So that's right. That's right. I forgot about that with uh, with Blue Beetle because uh, most of his stuff I've read is post Ditko. But with the question, I think all of the question books that I've got or question appearances that I've got at Charlton, um, you know, when it's just him solo, I think they're all uh, Ditko. 
And while I love Ditko Spider-Man, I, I've never been a fan of, of other stuff that he's done, with the exception of the question. I do like his question stuff because it has much the same uh, feel and style as his as his Spider-Man stuff. I really I really like that. And, and, and the character just lends himself to that weird Ditko style, I think. See, I like the Ditko Doctor Strange. That's actually my favorite Ditko. Yeah, same here. Yeah. Because I'm a, I'm a John Romita Spider-Man guy. Right. But, uh... Well, Scott, I, I have to say that this book moved me. And in the, and in the way that it moved me... <laughs> did it move you, or did you move it? <laughs> well, luckily, I had a laptop with me. That I could just take in there, so. It's, that's, no, this story you're scaring me now. <laughs> oh, no. Phil, I'm so glad that we decided to, <laughs> to bring you in. You brought a you brought an element of class to the show. Let me tell you, that's me. Class <laughs> rhymes with. Well, never mind. <laughs> no, um, sass. Yeah, yeah. No. I did like the art. This story, yeah, the story was, the story was weak. And really, a robot shark in water? Come on, you ever heard of Rust? Well, not to mention the fact, why, why would you ever need a robot shark if you've got enough money to buy a robot shark or make a robot shark? Just why wouldn't you get just have a shark? shark? Yes, yeah, but exactly. if you got a regular shark, it's not strong enough to burst through the side of your container. But why would that's, you want it to? I don't that's, know. That's why. You, <laughs> That's why you put a laser on its head. <laughs> laser shark. <laughs> a freaking shark with a laser head on it. Is it too much to ask for? <laughs> I just, you know, I, I, my mind just won't stop. Like, uh, you know, you were talking about Captain Adam, and I just kept thinking about uh, the Simpsons when they did Radioactive Man, and his, his cry is up and at him, and they had the Arnold Schwarzenegger character. They just kept saying, up and at them. And they kept making him repeat it over and over again, and he would do it exactly the same way. Up and at them! <laughs> that's, that's, I don't know, I just couldn't get that out of my head. <laughs> well, I think that's about it for this uh, episode. Mike, I hope we didn't bore you too badly with this one. No, not at all. It was good to have you on. It was good Thanks. to have you on. We're going nice to have fun. You. Gonna have to have you uh, actually grab an issue next time and uh, and jump in uh, jump in with us on this. Uh, I'd be happy to. It, cool. it, it'd have it'd be a lot easier if I had something prepared. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am the Shanghaier after all. Just ask Phil. That's your superpower, the Shanghaier. That's your super name. That's my that's my superhero name and power. I just Shanghai people and make them podcast. Shanghai Scott. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. 
Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libson.com and is a registered trademark of DeManzocor of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.